place of worship. In our first service, there was someone here, whom many of you probably know, who came this far from losing his life two weeks ago through a bacterial infection of the kind that attacks where you breathe, and so the whole larynx was closing. Two weeks later, there he is. He talked to the doctor uh, two days ago. He said, uh, he said, God has been really good. It has been good to me. And the doctor turned to him and said, God has been really, really good to you. Speaking of nobody great like him, as powerful as him, he is right there, Larry Gilliland. And uh, so we give him some praise for, for uh, bringing him back to us. But uh, why don't we turn to Romans 14. Romans 14, and today we will be starting in verse 10 as we work our way through this great book of Scripture. I've titled this message, God is the Judge. God is the Judge, and He's the one who sets the example, really, when it comes to judging others. And He's got a lot of bad press from uh, the Old Testament, the way people view it sometimes, that He's just a wrathful, vindictive God. But even in the Old Testament, that is not at all true. He sets the example when it comes to judging others. And that's a good thing, because what you see up there on the screens, on the screen there, is the judgment seat of God, what's also called, interestingly, the mercy seat. With the two cherubim, of course, stretching over it, and the light of the Almighty is uh, shining through it, and that's you in the middle, right in front. And um, between the angel and the book of life, on the left side, and the Christ who, uh, who has his arm around you, uh, around the, the angels on the left, Christ there is on the right. And everything's all right, because he's a merciful God who's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, as we find out all through the Old Testament even. And on top of that, he's enthroned above the mercy seat. And on top of that, Christ paid the penalty for our sin, of course, and, and he will be our friend and he will be our champion with his arm around us when we stand before the throne. And so you could stretch a banner over that entire scene that says, like James said, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the final word on the heart of God. Question, could you stretch a banner that, like that over your life when it comes to the way you treat others? Romans 14, again, starting in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any longer. The church at Rome was a very mature church. And he had to say, you got to stop doing it. Don't we, let us not judge one another any longer. Now, just to put it all in context, again, the two chapters before this, chapter 12 and 13, Paul told us, if you remember, about all the qualities of true Christianity that arise out of what Christ has done for us, out of all the doctrine in Romans 1 to 12. And in chapter 13, the one just before this, at the end, he says, all of these wonderful qualities are summed up in one word, love. He who has loved his neighbor has fulfilled the law just loving one another. And then on cha in chapters 14 and 15, Paul focuses on this, the most important quality. Two chapters out of 16 in this great book are about love. 
just loving one another, because that's the foundation of everything else, of course, without which we won't have all that much to offer, or we won't have all that much to enjoy with one another, which is what being a caring community is all about. Like we did on our hut trip, for instance, on Monday and Tuesday. We went to Janet's hut, about 21 from the church, and a couple who weren't churched, and we found out that love expresses itself in so many endearing ways. And maybe not so enduring. One of the couples had been away from their kids for a long time. And so when we were talking about who would sleep where, someone said, um, I think they need a room of their own. And we all laughed. And they said, she said, I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. But maybe I did. I don't know. So we laughed together. We cried together, played together in the great outdoors. So I saw how, just how crazy some of our people can be in the great outdoors. Played cards together, washed dishes smelled the composting toilets together when the solar power went down and the fans went off and the odor was no longer blown outside. That was a real memory maker. That was an odor we'll never forget. So, whenever I smell it again, guys, I'll think of you. Even that can smell good, given what love does to it. It's a precious thing that we can enjoy together, whether on a hut trip or talking between services or in iron hours, small groups, women's Bible study. Uh, How priceless a thing is this caring community which we're celebrating this year. Indeed, this can be so good. Indeed, it is so priceless that Paul wants, above all else, to keep it from being spoiled which is why he focuses two chapters on it. He begins by focusing negatively or kind of diagnostically on what are the main obstacles to love that can ruin it, that can quench it. He devotes the whole of chapter 14 to one thing, and that is judging your brother. Apparently, that's pretty common, pretty deadly, even in the church. And he could hardly have been more clear about what it means to be judgmental. You think, I'm not very judgmental. I don't do it much. Well, Paul kind of unpacks it. Again, verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? And what what does it mean to judge your brother in this negative sense? And he means it negatively here. Well, in the very next phrase, he defines what it means. Or you again, why do you regard your brother, here it is, with contempt? With contempt. We're being judgmental, apparently, when we regard our brother with contempt. Whatever we're saying, whether it's true or false, according to James, if it's said in the wrong way, what's true comes from the pit of hell. Whatever we're saying, whether it's true or false, we're being judgmental in what we're saying when in our heart of hearts there is contempt rather than compassion. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. The real challenge is not in seeing the sin. We think that's a big deal. That's no big deal. We've all got eyes in our head, right? The real challenge is not in seeing the sin or the weakness or the bad habit or whatever. No, the real challenge is in not what we're seeing, but in in how we're seeing it. That's Paul's point. Remember how Christ talked about not focusing on the log in your uh, the, the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye? Well, according to Paul, so often when we try to take the speck out of our brother's eye, uh, the log in our own eye is contempt, and we see right through it. He makes a double point of it. Literally, it translates, "Why do you contempt your brother with contempt?" Or another way of translating it is, why do you despise your brother with contemptuous despise? I think he's trying to make a point here, isn't he? 
It's like trying, he's trying to wake them up to something they might not have noticed. He's saying, you think, you know, you think, Glenn, that porta potty smelled bad, right? I did too. Just to compare it to something. He's saying, your contempt smells twice as bad as you think it does. You may think your attitude is not all that big a deal. You may not even think you have a problem here. But let me tell you something to God, uh, to your friends, to your family, to brothers and sisters at church, to unbelievers who are doing whatever. um, He's saying to the Romans, that attitude of yours is stinking to high heaven. And to those who are bearing the brunt of it. The idea is this, being contemptuous is so effortless that we're often clueless. And so Paul had to give them kind of a double whammy to wake them up to uh, what they were doing. Not just contempting, that's not just what they were doing, they were despising their brothers with contemptuous despise. Now that's something that will get your attention, right? Without even knowing it. So with that in mind, what do we do about it? Well, Paul makes such a point of it here that I thought the best way to bring it home to our hearts is just to tell a couple stories to illustrate it, both positively and negatively. So, so we'll never forget what contempt looks like and what compassion looks like as a way of inoculating ourselves against contempt and like inspiring ourselves with compassion. I pulled this from the Focus on the Family magazine years ago. I think it was back in 1984. It was titled The Crazy on the Corner by Mark Brooks. Subtitle, I thought he wanted a handout, but what he really wanted was a friend. He said that it was, he felt it was kind of bad luck when the light turned red because there was someone beside him who he wanted to get away from, uh, a street person. He said, I prayed and prayed that it would change quickly um, he, uh, because the manager said, uh, he said, can I have something for my file, mister? Now, Mark thought this one is obviously a crazy. <laughs> no doubt about it. Ever felt that way? He said the grimy box under his arm gave, it, gave him away immediately. Crazies always carry something, right? Usually a shopping bag or whatever, and they can be unstable, but he said this guy looked pretty safe anyway. Mark said, sorry, no money. Then he wrote this, I, I had repeated the old lie so often that it came out automatically. I think I've done that. I half expected, he said, to hear myself say, this is a recording, please shove off and don't try again. Ever felt that way? And then he repeated himself, do you have anything for my file? Come on, light, change. That's what Mark said he was feeling. Please change. He stepped over the curb to kind of look for a break in the traffic. He's going to weave his way around. When the man said, I'm Howard. What's your name? Mark. He said, he wrote one syllable was all the information I intended to give. Mark said he had, he chanced a quick look at the guy to see what Howard was doing. And Howard had a pencil in his hand. He had stooped down to pick up a a scrap piece of paper that was on the snow. And he wrote something on it. And then he took out his grimy box, opened it up and put it in the box um, in a file folder. Then the light changed, and of course, Mark took off. Well, a few days later, he was walking the same route when he noticed that there was an ambulance parked by this dingy alley, and uh, rolling uh, uh, on a stretcher uh, came out of the alley the crazy. 
The two attendants had wheeled their stretcher out, and uh, the police said that he was gone. And the police were questioning the crowd that had kind of gathered around, and they didn't receive any answers. Nobody seemed to care, not even the cop. It was just a little, you know, added excitement to an otherwise totally dull December day. The cop raised his voice and he asked, Does anyone know this guy? Nobody answered. Finally, Mark said, His name is Howard. And get this. The people around him backed away as if his knowing the crazy's name made him crazy too. Cooties. Whatever. The cop came over and began to pump him for more information. His name is Howard. That's all I know, sir. Well, at least there will be a name for the headstone. Thanks for your help. Oh, by the way, would you take this for me? He reached down and picked up the grimy old box. I'd like to skip the paperwork on this one. He shoved the box, Mark said, into my hands and walked away before I could say anything. I thought, why would, this guy, why would I want this guy's garbage? He walked away, and as he did, he opened up the box, and there was nothing in it but old clothes and that file folder. He pulled out the file... He wrote this. It said, Friends. I opened it and looked inside. It held only one small scrap of paper that looked very familiar. And on it was written, Mark. But you, Paul would say to Mark. Indeed, in this article, Mark was saying it to himself. But you, why did you judge him? Why did you regard him with contempt? There it is. Christ wept for such people. Seeing the multitudes, he said, they were like sheep without a shepherd. His heart was weeping with compassion because he knew they were lost in their sins. They were just distressed and downcast. That's what we were, like sheep without a shepherd. And if that's how he wants us to treat by far the worst case people, right? Those of us, all of us, were dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath with our face in the, our fist in God's face. If that's how He wants us to treat them, all us crazies, how, how much more ought we to treat, say, those who come to the food bank? Don't say they don't deserve it, so I'm not going to help. We didn't deserve it anyway, ourselves that by the sacrificial love, we were saved. I'm afraid that we on the religious right are so often just the opposite. Among many conservative evangel evangelicals, there is a pervasive pattern of judgmentalism in our own ranks, and oftentimes we don't even see it. John Montgomery wrote in a periodical called Modern Reformation. He called this our most obnoxious trait, Pharisaic moralism. Evangelicals manifest even toward each other, he said, appalling moralism and legalism, thereby turning off the unbeliever who might otherwise be attracted to the message. Contempt rather than compassion. Tom Hovisall was the second senior pastor I served under at our church in Houston. And uh, he published a book a while back with Moody Press called Extreme Righteousness, subtitled Seeing Ourselves in the Pharisees. One of the chapters was titled When Rightness Leads to Wrongness. Right words, totally wrong statement, right? Depending on attitude. He says that the number one sign of self-righteousness is a contemptuous, interesting choice of words right out of Romans, a contemptuous view of others. 
Do I compare myself with others, he writes, and look down on those who do not live as I do? Of course I do, all the time. This is a godly pastor talking. I rarely verbalize these thoughts or even acknowledge them to myself. I see right through it, right? But they are there. They surface in my secret reflections and what I utter under my breath. They come out in unguarded conversations about people not present. My contempt pops out in my prayers as I lament the evils of the culture more than my own personal sins. It slips out in my conversation about failing parishioners and fallen fellow pastors. And then he asks this, is the contempt light flashing on your dash too? Sure has on mine. Paul's main point is that God is the judge. And so when the contempt light is flashing on my own dash, when I hold my brother in contempt, I'm the one who's in contempt. I am in contempt of that court. Contempt of court. That's how serious it is. And it's probably stinking to high heaven. Probably to everyone but myself. Reminds me of some of what was going on during the Clinton years. This is kind of a safe distance from Obama. It does apply today, too. But when so many evangelicals were so contemptuous of the president, I'm afraid that rightness led to wrongness. I was amazed that all the evangelicals who wouldn't even admit they felt contemptuous when we talked about it. But at least Billy Graham got it right. Though he certainly got a whole lot of contempt in the opinion of those who should have been his friends. It was a statement that he said while he was on the Today Show. They asked him what he felt about the whole Monica Lewinsky affair, and he simply said this. He said, I forgive him. I know the frailty of human nature. It was ours to forgive him. He, he was elected, he was, but he had sinned with the people. Billy Graham said, I forgive him. And in saying that, he satisfied what should be the, the, the prerequisite for breathing even a single word of judgment, and that is mercy. I forgive him. I know the frailty of human nature. And boy, did it hit the fan. Cal Thomas took Billy Graham to task a few days later in a syndicated column in no uncertain terms. In fact, in rather contemptuous terms. <laughs> Not just toward Bill Clinton, but toward Billy Graham. Contemptuous contempt, and he didn't even see it. Because the real challenge is not in what we see, but in how we see it. You know, I'll never forget a dear young woman at our, form, our first church in Houston. Her name was Margarita Jaime. Uh, Margarita Jaime, a Hispanic American, speaking of our prejudices, she was a young stewardess, and it was early in the morning. She told me the story when she got back. They were en route from Burbank to uh, Denver, and she was responsible for the first class section, but she finished early, and she was a real servant, so she went out to see if there was any way she could help in the coach section. And one man was sitting alone by the window, and uh, he asked her for some scotch on the rocks. Well, when she got to the kitchen, she wondered something out loud. She said, who in the world would, wa would want scotch? on the rocks at 7 a.m. in the morning. The other stewardess who'd been working the section answered her in a rather scornful voice. She said, and I wrote it down, why, an alcoholic, of course, he's an alcoholic. As if, you know, she wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. 
Well, Margarita went back and gave him the drink, and then she stopped just to look at him. He was in his 40s, a a businessman of Spanish-American descent. He was a Cuban, she later found out, with awfully red eyes, sad, sad eyes, and a drawn face. Just, you know how it is when you look at these people, they're just looking out the window, and you see what's really going on in their hearts. As she walked away, she thought, that dear man, who knows what pain he's trying to drink away. Have you ever had pain? Have you ever turned on the TV to watch it away? Or whatever. She said it was like God was telling her to go back. Go back and tell him about me. So she went back and all she did was she first put a gospel track on his tray and then she just smiled at him and adjusted his seat. And that was the end of it. Or so she thought. Well, when they got to Denver, it was snowy and the plane had been delayed, of course. And so, of course, there was this... The, 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 the jetway was totally hectic as people rushed out, you know, to get their connections. And Margarita was helping an elderly lady. And just when she got this lady to the ticket counter, she turned around and there he was. Stopped looking at her. But it was like he was a different man somehow. And she could tell it. And he came up to her and he hugged her and with tears in his eyes he said, how did you know? Well, people were pushing by on either side of them so she, you know, she ushered him around the, the ticket counter and he was shaking and she was, he was crying and he kept saying, how did you know? How did you know? And then she started to cry, and she said, No, what? And, and he said, That's what I need. That I need God. I need Jesus. Well, he too was late for his connection, and so he was, he was scribbling down his name and his address and his phone number so they could keep in touch. He was so excited that he kept saying, How did you know? My, my children, my children, you've got to talk to my children. And he hugged her and he shook her hand and he was off. Well, when she got back to Houston, she came into my office and told me that story. And we, uh, she asked me, "Is there? How can we find a church for this guy in Burbank?" And and uh, I did some calling and I found out that there was a Spanish church with a Cuban pastor which he was in the same city. In fact, it was just down the street from his house. And several members of the church lived on his block. Is God working in everyone's life or what? No matter who they are. And he became a part of a church family of a caring community. My time is up. I need to stop. But if you'd like to read more on this, I'd highly recommend a book called The Relationship Principles of Jesus. The Relationship Principles of Jesus. It's a, uh, uh, there are 40 days of readings here, and it's going to be the foundation of what we're going to do starting March 13th. We'll break up into small groups, or small groups currently meeting can do this too for six weeks for what we're calling 40 Days of Love. And uh, the, the, if you do it, day 22 to 28, focus on not judging. Listen. 
Day 22, the danger of judgment. Day 23, say no to hypocrisy. Day 24, say yes to integrity. Day 25, say now to mercy. Day 26, understanding God's mercy. Day 27, understanding God's judgment. Day 28, seeing the truth about yourself rather than just seeing through it. If you want to prepare for it, the relational principles of Jesus. It's going to be a powerful six-week experience when we will learn in very practical ways how to become even more of a caring community. It's the heart and soul of our year of the caring community. So we'll be talking about it more, but I do need to close. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you for what you taught us this morning. And all the more, Father, in this year of the caring community, we pray, especially through those 40 days of love, that you would, like never before, teach us to love one another and to love outsiders. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's all stand.